Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, I want to start this by reading a quote from the Surgeon General of Florida, Dr. Joseph Ladapo. This is the quote. He says, It's heartbreaking how much corruption there is right now at the FDA as far as mRNA COVID-19 vaccines go. Pfizer was supposed to report data on their subclinical myocarditis study by the end of December 2022, but the FDA extended their deadline by six months. These are data that we should have had more than a year and a half ago. Two studies so far show the rates of injury to the heart are at least 100 times higher than the documented rates of myocarditis. This is a real concern for young people, especially if they're physically active, because this type of heart injury almost certainly increases the risk of cardiac arrhythmia and possibly sudden cardiac death. It's truly heartbreaking that the FDA can show so much indifference to the health of Americans. I read that and I thought, well, that's a very striking quote from someone who knows what he's talking about, the Surgeon General of Florida. So I thought we would sit down and talk to him today, talk to him about this quote and dive more deeply into it. Dr. Ladapo, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you. So, thank you for having me on. All right. This, this is a very troubling quote. I mean, I saw a statistic recently that said that upwards of 70% of people all over the world, this is not just in the United States, not just in Florida, have taken the mRNA COVID vaccine. If this is in fact true that the rate of myocarditis is 100 times higher than the, than the regular rate, what do, you, what do you expect to see, not just in the next month or two, but what do you expect to see in the next couple of years as a result of this? I actually am someone who, and I'm not alone, but I am someone who is sincerely concerned about the the long-term health effects of these mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Very much sincerely. They 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 just they just didn't receive the type of testing that other medical products will typically receive, particularly a medical product that's novel in terms of its use in human beings. And we've seen, there's just a lot of unusual things in terms of side effects that don't have a great explanation. What are some examples of that? The effect that the vaccines, the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines seem to have on sperm counts the effect that they seem to have on on menstrual cycles, the effect that they seem to have on the risk of appendicitis, uh, the effect that they have on shingles. I mean, these are all all conditions whose risk appear to be increased. Myocarditis, obviously, is another another example. So my sense is that the way that they've been rolled out and implemented is really premature. I do, I get it with with people feeling a sense of urgency with the with the pandemic, even though that's an issue too, in terms of thinking about how you make decisions in, in periods where there's crisis and whether you come from a place of fear or whether you come from a place of, of really of heart-centeredness and, and being present in the moment 
and and being present to you know to to everything that you can bring into that decision. Obviously, we were very much in the former camp and not in the latter camp. So, so I I have sincere concerns about how the story of these vaccines will continue to evolve in terms of their safety risks. And of course, the quote that you just read refers to just one, which is cardiac injury. Right, which I think might be on the forefront of people's minds, especially after the Super Bowl. There was that interview that Michael Strahan did on Good Morning America with Damar Hamlin, who of course, 24-year-old professional athlete, had a heart attack on the field. And I know it's impossible to diagnose from a distance, but having, I mean, with your experience working in this field, with your opinions based on based on reality, based on science, on the vaccine, what do you make of that situation? <laughs> well, you know, I saw snippets of the interview. I didn't watch the whole thing. And it's, it's obviously, it's really hard to tell what's going on. I mean, he clearly he clearly is withholding something, which is his right. We don't have, unlike the people like the governor of New York, who felt that your vaccination choices, your medical information was was not your private information, that in fact it, it should be disclosed upon questioning. It is his. He, he has every right to not share anything. But at the same time, just my impression of watching him, he's clearly hiding a lot. And, and it's not even, it's not even, it's not even sort of a, a, a small thing he's hiding. He has the tension of a guy who is hiding, hiding something more substantial. I mean, he, he looks very uncomfortable. He looked extremely uncomfortable in that interview. And, and I, I feel bad for him because he clearly is uncomfortable and is not, happy about his uh, current situation, whatever, you know, whatever is happening in, their ba- in the background between probably doctors and lawyers and the NFL. Uh, so there's that. But you know, it is a question. I mean, it, it just shows where we are as a society now that this guy, you know, thankfully he, he was resuscitated, but he has a, he has a cardiac arrest right there on the in the, on the on the field, right there. I mean, terrifying for him, terrifying for his family, terrifying for his teammates, and you know, millions of people were wondering: Is this related to the NFL's vaccine program in terms of the mRNA COVID nineteen vaccines? So it's a question that that should be answered, and it's not a question that I anticipate will get quiet. That was, I mean, aside from the the frightening aspect of is this is this young man going to live? Is he going to die? When we were all watching this unfold, that was the part to me that was the most striking. Is watching on Twitter specifically the the entirety, which is which is a good place to see what what the general population is thinking about a, a live event. Was to see the extent of that question being asked. Did this have to do with the vaccine? Is is that a valid question to ask, or is there another explanation that people that people might not who haven't been trained in medicine might not be aware of? Oh, both are true. I mean, but it, it is completely valid to ask that. I mean, it's, it's it's clearly reasonable to ask that, considering that he is in a demographic. You know, he's a young man that is at increased risk of cardiac injury from mRNA COVID nineteen vaccines, and not like a little bit increased. He's like a lot increased. I mean, the the magnitude of risk increase is 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 
really big. I mean, it's it's not, this isn't something that's a mild risk factor for having cardiac injury. I mean, it's, it, is, it is the major risk factor for having cardiac injury. So asking the question, I think it is very reasonable. There are other possibilities, of course. There's, there's a condition that, uh, that cardiologists talk about that can cause a cardiac arrest if you're struck in the chest just at the right moment. It's something that I learned in medical school also. Beyond that, you know, what other possibilities there are? I don't know that the list is extremely long. There are other sort of medical and technical possibilities that would increase his risk of a cardiac arrest. But medically, from my perspective, one of the things that you notice is that when people do have these pre-existing conditions that predispose them to have a cardiac arrest during exertion, which is a tragedy and unfortunately happens every year, in, in universities in that that the age group when that happens when someone is physically active is usually a little younger so so my sense is that he he probably doesn't have a genetic predisposition to cardiac arrest because I would have expected it to show up by now uh, so you know so I, I think it is it is reasonable to ask about potential causes of it. And, uh, and it's, you know, and, and people have done that. I think it is reasonable. Okay. Round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No and I'm interested in the study that you conducted in Florida about this when there wasn't information being given by the FDA. You, you did your own study on the risk to young men. Can you tell me about how that process, I think a lot of us are familiar with the results, if you wouldn't mind sharing those too, though. But I, I, I'm interested in the process uh, that went into that when you realized that, hey, we need to have some solid data and this is how we're going to pull it together since we're not being served by the federal government. Yeah, so we did a study looking at all-cause mortality, and also looking at cardiac mortality after the vaccines, including the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in Florida. And we found that uniquely across all age groups, across both sexes, there was an increased risk of cardiac, cardiac death among young men in the, I think it was the 28 days following the the COVID-19 vaccine, the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. So this was a this was our finding. And based on that, we recommended against their use in young men, which is obviously the correct decision at this point in the pandemic. It's just so obvious. You didn't even need the study to, to make that conclusion truly. But uh, but it it helps to have the data to to show that it's 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 a good decision, and and so that was the recommendation we made. There was a lot of 
unhappiness about that recommendation, but, uh, but it was, it was definitely, it was the right thing to do. And it would have been really wrong to see a signal and do what the CDC does, which is to basically write off every signal, every safety signal that they find for as long as they can. And that's like, that's literally, that's their playbook. Uh, You may remember that they just uh, a few weeks ago, they made the announcement about the stroke signal in older people. And they immediately essentially tried to undermine it by saying other countries hadn't identified it, et cetera, et cetera. But the truth is that that signal was actually, has been seen before. It's been it's been present in past analyses of the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. So that their approach to safety of these mRNA COVID-19 vaccines is just completely lopsided. They give the benefit of the doubt as if their, you know, first cousin and sister are the founders of Pfizer and would never tell any lies and never do anything dishonest and never do any wrong. Uh, so it's just, it's not a, it's not fair to the American people to approach safety in that way. No, it's called institutional capture. You made the same recommendation though about the vaccine for children, uh, I think between the ages of five and 11, correct? That it's not recommended for them? For all children, all healthy children. And, and we did make that recommendation and that one was very easy. It's so funny. You look at Dr. Fauci, you watch videos of him early in the pandemic, and he's, he's, this is back when President Trump was, uh, was president. And he's, a reporter asks him about hydroxychloroquine, and he, he lectures the audience about how you need randomized clinical trials. He's like, you need a randomized controlled trial before you know a medication works. And, um, and he's lecturing and that's like, that's what he is. And he, and he even says things like, you know, just to repeat myself, you need this clinical trial. And he, now, you know, fast forward and now we're looking at COVID-19 vaccines for children. Is there a clinical trial that has shown that children, especially healthy children, have a health benefit from COVID-19 vaccines? Never happened. It has not happened. So that was a super easy one. We, we recommended against their use in that population, particularly considering their low, their low risk, their extremely low risk uh, already. And just the fact that you can't, you can't inject things into people without knowing that, without being confident that, that it's going to, it's going to help them. I mean, that's, that's, that is irresponsible at best. Given what we now know about both the, the mRNA jabs and the virus itself, do you recommend the mRNA shots to anyone? So at this point in the pandemic, it's, um, it is, it's hard to know whether the benefits outweigh the risk for anyone, for sure. And what I mean by that is that, is that the amount of immunity that's in the community is, is extremely high. I mean, it, it's over 90% of people, um, it's approaching 100% of people have previously been effect, infected or have immunity some other way. So the amount of immunity is is super high. And there's just no randomized clinical trial data at this point showing benefit. So these studies, by the way, that the CDC likes to 
say or showing a, a benefit still, they appear to be very confounded. And this is why we do randomized clinical trials, because people who get the vaccines tend to be very different from people who don't. In general, they tend to be healthier. I mean, people would think that it's on average that people are less healthy, but actually they tend to be healthier. They tend to have higher income. They tend to have higher education. They tend to be people who would live longer anyway. So what you see in these studies that the CDC does that are observational studies that are not clinical trials, you see reductions not only in COVID deaths, but you'll see reductions in overall deaths. And it's like, that was never even shown in the randomized clinical trials. So they're finding benefits that weren't shown in the clinical trials and their studies. And it's not because those benefits are there. It's because those benefits represent confounding. They represent the fact that the, on average, the people who get these vaccines are healthier than the people who don't, and they live longer. And so it shows up in the studies. So if you had a patient this is a hypothetical question, but if you had a patient that wanted to get the mRNA jab, how would you give that patient informed consent? What information do you think is necessary for them to know in order to be informed about it? That is a great, that's a great question. And we actually released something this uh, this evening related to that, related to the VIRS findings. Basically in Florida, there was a something like a 1,700% increase in VIRS reports in 2020 and over a 4,000% increase in VIRS reports for, uh, for life-threatening conditions in 2020. Uh, so there, it, it's actually, I would say that it's, it, it, it is almost impossible actually right now to provide informed consent because there's been so much dishonest, disinformed information about safety. And even the, the, the efficacy data at this point in the pandemic is really hard to, is really hard to, to voice with confidence. So I, I think at this point in the pandemic, it's hard to provide informed consent that, um, that really accurately informs benefits. The risk side is incomplete, but there's more certainty there from some of the studies that have been done that that have fewer problems with with confounding. So I, I think at this point in the pandemic, it's a it's a hard sell for just about everyone, especially with the availability of treatment. And you mentioned before, and I appreciate that you mentioned this, you talk about the FB, FDA and the CDC being essentially in bed with big pharma. When you talk about FDA corruption, a lot of us know this as regulatory capture or institutional capture. But my question to you is on the inside of public health, how does that work? A lot of us on the outside want to be able to identify where this corruption, exactly where it happens so that we can prevent it, so that we can hold those who have engaged in it accountable. Where exactly does that happen? How does this happen? And what should be a process instead for a federal government regulatory body to approve new medical products that isn't tinged with either profit incentives or ideology? It, right, right. So, so my sense from my observations and the observations of my colleagues who I trust is that the rot runs pretty deep. And it's unfortunate, but it really is rotten uh, pretty far through. 
not everyone um, and not every not every not everyone working in these organizations is and and you know i have colleagues who have contacts within the cdc and the fda people who complain about what's happening in there but quietly complain i get it people don't want to lose their jobs they don't want to lose their benefits they have families they have mortgages i, I totally get that but my my sense is that from all those data points that the rot the rot runs deep and it's sad and it, it, it's unfortunate but it it's i my, i believe it is the reality and what the heck are you going to do how do you fix that well, you fix it with new leadership and enlightened leadership, like leadership that that has an eye for for how to separate, you know, what the pieces that have integrity from the pieces that, you know, that whose 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 incentives and whose motivation is not good science and service to the public. So my hope and belief is that that is coming. Uh, we might have to wait a few years, but but I believe that's coming. I, I hope so. And I know I'm not alone here in, in hoping that. I don't know if you saw that video from Project Veritas where they did that undercover investigation of the Pfizer employee who was admitting when he thought he wasn't on camera much of what we're talking about right now, concerns about fertility, concerns, uh, concerns about whether the efficacy of the vaccine... What, what do you make of this? I mean, as a, as a doctor and particularly one who works in public health, Pfizer is a, obviously a pharmaceutical company, a big player in the field of medicine. I mean, what's your reaction to that? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> yeah, that we, we all had a lot of entertainment at that poor guy's expense. I mean, you know, I, I certainly am grateful that he did what he did. I, I, obviously, he did it unwittingly, but I'm grateful that he did what he what he did. And, you know, I think a couple things come to mind. You know, Dr. Malone actually did a nice little analysis that I looked at. And basically, it does sound like they may be doing some of the things that Pfizer had that press release that was the Friday after the the episode that they put out and basically denied you know, doing all this stuff. And it, Dr. Malone, reading what he wrote, he linked an old article from that involved Pfizer scientists and described some of what they were doing. And it actually sounded like they were in fact doing some of those things that, that came up in the video. But it's it's easy to disguise these things in other clothes because it's so technically uh, opaque. You know, they they get away with 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 obfuscation due to the technical uh, um, uh, dimensions of of some of these techniques. So. 
so I mean, it was, I mean, it was very interesting. Honestly, I don't, I don't think anything would surprise me at this point in terms of Pfizer's actions and, and, and not just Pfizer. I mean, it's not to pick on them. I mean, it's like the industry itself. Pfizer's got, has a history of getting in lots of trouble for dishonest practices, big fines. Same thing with Merck. We think about, you remember the Vioxx? I mean, that was, that was, you know, most Americans don't know a lot of the details of the whole uh, Vioxx debacle, but it was, it was quite terrible. I mean, they were essentially sitting on data that was out there that showed that this medication was was probably causing heart attacks in people. And they sat on it. I mean, they, they, they consciously sat on it. And, you know, and finally the house crumbled and, you know, there was a lot of finger pointing, but these, these organizations from as far as I can tell from my feelings, you know, sort of my, my intuition, I mean, there's almost nothing. They're not, they're not human beings in the sense that they have hearts and they have, you know, that there's, that they have you know, multiple dimensions of emotion and, and feeling and thought they are, they are really more like, more like monsters, if you will, that are, you know, sort of unit, unidimensional in terms of their, their interest in profit and that defining everything. And that's their right, but you ought not put so much trust and faith in an organization that behaves that way. Yeah, I would also argue that it's not their right to harm people in their pursuit of profit, especially when they are presenting a product as safe. I think that's that's the definition of fraud. I mean, a lot of people think that Pfizer should be investigated by the U.S. Congress and perhaps Moderna as well for what they've done. Where do you stand on that? No, you you absolutely. And and really, that's the FDA's responsibility just to 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 make sure that they that they understand that they can, you know, they can pursue profit like they want, but hear the guardrails and, and, and to hold them to that. And the FDA totally hasn't in the domain of these mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. I think that more questions need to be asked. And I think that, uh, in, in terms of, in terms of, in terms of, looking into some of the just some of the just terrible things that we've seen you mentioned the 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 quote that you mentioned earlier was about the subclinical myocarditis issue How, why why are they getting six more months to report a study that can be done in two weeks i mean it takes two weeks to do this it's so easy to do this study and why do they get you know forever to do it why did they why was it why don't we already know the answer to that? That is an important question. So I do agree with you that we need to dig more into that. And I just, I, I hope that the leadership can. Honestly, I'm not sure that, that some of our leaders in Congress are, have the clarity to, to do it effectively. I certainly hope they do, but, um, you know, Rand Paul's terrific. It's, he's just, he's really terrific. He gets it. And obviously he has a scientific background. Um, but um, I think that for a lot of people, unfortunately, without the scientific background, it's just harder, I think, for them to, to feel like they have sure footing 
in debates with um, in investigations like this that have such a big science component. Yeah, I, I think that's actually very insightful because some of them simply don't have the fire in their belly and some of them just don't feel confident in this in this area. We need some people in, in Congress that do have confidence, though. Um, talk to me a little bit about what you're doing in Florida. This is a little bit of a change of topic away from COVID, but one of the other big public health emergencies, in my opinion, is what we're doing to children's bodies in the name of gender identity ideology. Um, and it, it's horrific. We're, we're seeing videos undercover, not undercover videos, but we're seeing videos from so-called gender clinics around the country admitting that they perform mastectomies and hysterectomies on children, on underage girls who are suffering from this mental illness. I don't think that those things should be legal. I don't think it should be something that we we try to discourage. I think it should be something we prohibit. Where do you fall on that? Well, I personally have, you know, I've looked at a lot of studies and, and, you know, I think there are two issues. So there's the data issue and then there's the political issue. And, and really the political issue is the more important one because it is an ideology. It's, it's, it's basically craziness in a bottle in terms of recommending these treatments for children. And it's total ideology and it's total B period, S period. I mean, it's complete nonsense in terms of how it's pushed. So, you know, people, the people are asked to suspend their common sense. Could it make sense that you take a child who is in probably the most confusing period of his or her life and you add to all of that confusion that we all go through, through puberty and all that stuff, you add to that hormones whose effect, certainly long-term, we don't understand them, we don't know, they, we know that they affect how brains mature, how other tissues mature, how bones develop, et cetera, et cetera. And you even you know, take away organs that they were born with. I mean, organs that could affect their ability to procreate and their ability to, you know, to have an, an, an joyful sexual relationship with their partners uh, later on when they're when they're married and stuff, or, you know, or, or later when they're adults and, 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 you know, sexually active. So you take away that and you say that you want people to believe that that's a solution. I mean, what that is, is an experiment with a child. That's not a solution. So that's, that's the reality. And, you know, unfortunately, whether it's this climate change um, obsession in terms of, what people are asked to sacrifice or, or frankly, how data is misconstrued into like uncertainty is, is uh, transformed into certainty because there's tremendous uncertainty with climate science uh, from, from the readings. I mean, tremendous uncertainty, but no, 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 it's happening in exactly the way we say it. And these are exactly the steps we need to take to stop it. So, there's there's a huge political political component, and I hope that more and more people see that because it, what what they're doing is they're taking advantage of people's sympathy and they're taking advantage of people's empathy. So the and that's what's really happening. And then you look at the data, which is the other piece, and it's mostly abysmal. I mean, it's mostly confounded studies. The data are not strong. There are countries in Europe who were doing it before we did it and now have essentially stopped or 
severely limited it because they're, they have concerns that they're doing more harm than good. So that's, that's, that's the reality. And it's just, I mean, it's tragic. It's so tragic to see this happen. Um, when you look at public health in our country, whether it's at the state level, the local level, or the federal level, clearly we have a problem with public health. People always talk about there being a crisis of confidence in public health. Like, oh, the people are going to lose confidence in public health. Well, maybe that should happen. Maybe the crisis in confidence is because we have been betrayed by our public health. How do, how do we reform, not people's perception of public health, but how do we reform public health so that when people see the reality of it, they view it as something they can perhaps use as, as a, a resource confidently? Yeah, you need you need new leaders, and there's just the 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 bunch in in leadership right now and power right now is just they're they're just not able to be redeemed. They are irredeemable. Um, whether it's Dr. Walensky at the CDC or you know, what's happening at the FDA, and then what's happening in the executive branch of government. You need new leaders. You need a total makeover and enlightened leaders, good leaders who can you know, understand the depth of the problem and root out the areas where that that energy, that intention of deception, of pharma first, Americans, Americans, you know, at the end of the line of, you know, at all costs, protect the protect the message, protect the protect the mission or protect the uh you know, protect, protect the agenda, like all that nonsense has to go away. So, you know, like I said, I do think that that is coming. I think it's, uh, I think it's, I do think it's coming. I certainly pray it's coming. I believe it is coming. And I think we're going to have to wait a few years, but I do believe it's coming. I hope so. That's very hopeful. Um, I encourage everyone to get Dr. Ladapo's book. It's called Transcend Fear a blueprint for mindful leadership in public health. I think we're all ready for some mindful leadership in public health. You can find it wherever books are sold. It's called Transcend Fear, a blueprint for mindful leadership in public health. Dr. Joseph uh, Ladapo, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate it too, Liz. Thank you. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.